The New York Times is reporting that Trump's former finance chief, Alan Weisselberg, is in negotiations to plead guilty to perjury for allegedly lying on the stand during Trump's civil fraud trial. And while we don't know for certain which alleged lie Mr. Weisselberg might be owning up to, the testimony the New York Times points to, the thing they heavily suggest may be the lie in this case, is maybe the most Trumpy thing ever. Just a few months ago, back in October, Alan Weisselberg took the stand to defend the Trump Organization in New York Attorney General Letitia James' $250 million civil fraud lawsuit. That's the case where Trump and his company are being accused of defrauding investors by, among other things, inflating the value of their assets to obtain favorable loans from banks. And so one of the things Mr. Weisselberg was asked about, under oath, was the size of Donald Trump's penthouse apartment and Trump Tower. The one that looks like Louis XIV on acid. Now, the AG believes that this asset in particular is a glaring example of Donald Trump's fraudulent overvaluation. Yes, there are monster chandeliers and there are marble walls, but for years, this three-story penthouse was listed on annual financial statements as measuring more than 30,000 square feet, when in reality, it is just over 10,000 square feet. It is a third of that size, which in New York City real estate is just a colossal overstatement. And when Mr. Alan Weisselberg was asked, again, under oath, if he had anything to do with that bonkers overstatement, he said, I never focused on the triplex, to be honest with you. It was almost de minimis relative to Trump's net worth, so I, I really didn't focus on it. Which really appears to be a lie, under oath. It turns out that Mr. Trump and Mr. Weisselberg hadn't just been inflating the size and value of his apartment to the banks. Whether it was for his ego or for his brand or both, Trump has spent decades obsessed with making the Forbes 400 list. That's the list of the 400 wealthiest Americans, which for the record, Donald Trump did not make this year. And Trump's relentless quest to be known as one of the wealthiest Americans meant that for decades now, Trump and his allies, including Alan Weisselberg, have relentlessly lobbied Forbes magazine, inviting reporters to that penthouse apartment, bragging to them on the phone and on email about how large and valuable it was, petitioning for it to be included in Trump's net worth. And the Forbes reporters kept those receipts. They knew that none of this was de minimis. And after Alan Weisselberg testified in the trial, Forbes announced a review of old emails and notes, some of which the attorney's general, the attorney general's office does not possess, show that Mr. Weisselberg absolutely thought about Donald Trump's apartment and played a key role in trying to convince Forbes reporters over the course of several years that it was worth more than it really was. In 2012, Weisselberg asked a Forbes reporter why the magazine counts large private estates for other billionaires and not Trump. Weisselberg said Forbes should be including Trump's New York penthouse. He thinks it's worth more than $88 million. The next year, 2013, Weisselberg kept pushing. A Forbes reporter wrote to a colleague, now Allen says it's worth $200 million. Allen. In 2014, Weisselberg sent Forbes sales records for a luxury apartment building near Trump's and then applied a per square foot rate calculation to demonstrate the value of Trump's apartment, which he said was 30,000 square feet. 
In 2015, Donald Trump toured three Forbes journalists around his penthouse with Alan Weisselberg at his side. During that tour, Donald Trump again claimed the apartment was 33,000 square feet. Now, after Forbes ran that story, proving that Alan Weisselberg did, in fact, focus on Donald Trump's apartment a lot, Alan Weisselberg abruptly stopped testifying to the New York attorney general. Now, again, we do not know for certain that this is the alleged lie that Weisselberg is reportedly in negotiations to plead guilty to perjury for. But, man, it certainly seems likely. And the New York Times gives us one other major clue as to what is behind these reported plea negotiations. The Times reports that the thing that set these negotiations in motion were renewed threats that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg might file new charges against Mr. Weisselberg. And those charges could mean the 76-year-old Weisselberg could be placed once again behind bars. Now, last year, Mr. Weisselberg spent 100 days in Rikers Island jail for his role in helping engineer a wide-ranging tax fraud scheme at Trump's family business. During that case back in 2022, not only did Weisselberg plead guilty, but part of his plea deal required him to testify at a civil trial that same year against the Trump Organization. So what does Alan Weisselberg's potential guilty plea here mean for Donald Trump? As the New York Times puts it tonight, Although the potential agreement is unlikely to immediately affect Mr. Trump, it could strengthen Mr. Bragg's hand before the former president's trial. It could deter other witnesses in Mr. Trump's circle from lying on the stand. And perjury charges could discredit Mr. Weisselberg, who has disputed details of Mr. Bragg's evidence. In other words, this could all be quite material to that criminal case against Donald Trump, which is scheduled to begin on March 25th. And tonight, just hours ago, we got even more breaking news that makes that all the more important. Tonight, Jack Smith's federal election interference case just dropped off the D.C. court's calendar. Now, that case had originally been scheduled for March 4th, but now, due to delays caused by Trump's presidential immunity appeal, it looks like that date is off the books. Very much TBD. So that is huge news for Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Bragg had previously made clear that he would defer to the federal cases if there was a scheduling conflict. But with Jack Smith's case now potentially delayed till who knows when, that could very well clear D.A. Bragg to take Donald Trump to trial as early as March 25th. What happens if one of the key defense witnesses in the first and maybe the only criminal trial Donald Trump is likely to face ends up behind bars? Joining me now are Suzanne Craig, New York Times investigative reporter, focused like a hawk on the finances and taxes of Donald Trump, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama and professor at the University of Alabama School of Law. Sue and Joyce, it's great to see you both. Thank you for being here tonight. I, um, I mean, Sue, apart from the, just the most Trumpy potential perjury ever, of course it comes back to Donald Trump's penthouse size. Um, first, first, Like, I get, if you could, help me understand Alan Weisselberg, who is so involved in this, like, valuation of the Trump penthouse, is on the phone to reporters, he's emailing them, he's really trying to say, this thing is really worth a lot of money, and then goes and stands under oath and said, that was never my thing, I was not really that concerned about the valuation of that, it was de minimis to his financial portfolio. 
I, that's a, that's a hard one. It's as if he didn't, you know, I don't know, maybe he had amnesia when he got up there that day. I just want to say to start off with, shout out to Forbes and to Dan Alexander, the reporter involved in in, in that reporting, and who's able to almost immediately bring it to light, and also to the Times tonight for my colleagues for that, this great story. It was sort of masterfully done with a lot of different pieces about Alan Weiselberg, who we have not talked about, you and I, for it seems like years. I think it's probably been... <laughs> several months. But I think where we left off, they were, you know, looking at charging him for misrepresenting um, or, or lying to an insurance company about an asset saying that it had had a valuation on it that it didn't. And then that sort of went on the back burner. And now all of a sudden, this has popped up, um, you know, right ahead of this trial. And it definitely does look like they're trying to send a message um, to to other witnesses about the uh, about the perils of, of lying on the stand. But it was just it's incredible just to see what what Forbes was able to almost immediately surface on Alan Weiselberg seemingly, you know, years long campaign to have a uh, have the uh, the value of that penthouse put much higher than it, it should have been. Yeah, well, I mean, and 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 Sue Joyce Sue name checks to, um, Dan Alexander, who was the reporter who dealt with Mr. Weisselberg, and then I believe <laughs> Control Room can connect, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe is in the room when Weisselberg is just plainly lying on the stand. To me, that suggests, and this is after Alan Weisselberg has already served time at Rikers. A level of um, a sense of impunity on the part of at least the Trump defendants, if not Trump himself, when it comes to matters of the court. It's just shocking to me that it would be so brazen. It shouldn't be, I guess. Should it? I mean, it is incredibly brazen, particularly when you think about prosecutors' sensitivity to perjury. Perjury is one of those charges that if you can prove it, you bring it because it's so central to the importance of truth telling in the criminal justice system. But it's worth noting a couple of things, Alex. First off, perjury charges are hard to make, and we can't really assess whether there's a strong case here without seeing the actual questions he was asked and his answers. There has to be a clear match with no waffle room in order for it to be perjury. So, you know, I think that's important. And then this is reporting that plea negotiations are underway. We know how fragile that can be. Anyone who lived through the Hunter Biden debacle understands that until the court, until the judge accepts a plea of guilt in the courtroom, there is no deal. Can I follow up on that, Joyce? And I think that that's a very important word of caution, that this is not inked by any any stretch and could absolutely fall apart. Um, I'm sure the reporting in The New York Times doesn't help the prosecutor's case here. If it does go through, though, I mean, what are the implications for other witnesses in Trump's orbit who are watching the treatment of Alan Weisselberg? It's exactly why prosecutors go after perjury with so much force. It really does send a message to other witnesses in a case. I've been involved in cases where we've prosecuted someone for perjury in the grand jury. And you see the other witnesses who are trying to decide just how much they can get away with take note. So in this case, I think it's really important. For one thing, it probably serves to keep Alan Weisselberg off the witness stand as a defense witness for Donald Trump. He yeah. has always defied the normal expectations with someone who completes a, a guilty plea that they will cooperate for prosecutors as part of that deal. He has never fully cooperated in any case 
But keeping him off the stand and sending out a caution to other witnesses would be important for Alvin Bragg at this point. Yeah. Sue, can you talk a little bit about the role that Alan Weisselberg has played thus far and what him not taking the stand in Trump's defense, what the implications of that might be? Well, he's been, you know, long present in Donald Trump's life. I mean, he came from Fred Trump's operation, Donald Trump's dad, and knows, you know, I would say where everything is buried at the Trump organization. He is incredibly familiar with the finances. And he, if people remember back to the criminal trial um, a few years ago now, I think it was uh he was he was found guilty and, and went to Rikers for um, not for avoiding payroll tax. They were giving out perks to employees and he got some of them and there was no tax paid on them. So that's sort of where we're at now. And, and then we're heading now into a hush money payment trial. Potentially, we learned tonight it could go ahead March 25th. We still don't know. But Alvin Bragg's office has been preparing for that. And we're going to see now whether or not he, you know, he's central to that. He was in the in the room. He saw a lot of it. Michael Cohen has said he was in the middle of it. Um, so, you know, I think there was just a lot of pressure on on Weiselberg and, and a lot of focus on him and what he knew and what potentially if he ends up on the witness stand, what he will say. The Times is reporting that they don't expect him to be on the witness stand. And I think part of what's going on here is trying to discredit him because he's clearly not cooperating. So they don't want him called up on the other side to potentially say something in defense of Donald Trump or knock down evidence um, that, that, that could come up. Joyce, um, you know, Sue rightly points out that it feels like it's been years since we've uttered the name Alan Weisselberg. Um, and that's in part due to the fact that there are there's a lot of trialing happening right now or potential trialing happened. But as we as we have the, this kind of more breaking news tonight that the March 4th federal election interference case, that date has disappeared from the court's calendar. Man, it sure like looks like that is not happening in March or maybe even April which means, Joyce, that, you know, the criminal trial most on track for as far as, you know, holding Donald Trump accountable for something is the Alvin Bragg case. Would you disagree with that? No, I think that's absolutely right at this point. And, you know, the Alvin Bragg case, which has often been discounted as the least important of the four cases, it's such a funny idea that a former president has been indicted four times. So we have to talk about which case is the most serious, (laughs) you know, which of his crimes is the worst. Um, This case, though, is about election interference. This is 2016 on the eve of the election. Trump wants to make sure that voters don't hear a very damaging piece of information about his personal life. And so he engages in this complicated scheme now charged by the district attorney in Manhattan to influence the outcome of that election. This, I think, is a fitting first case to try the former president on. And I expect that it will try as a much more serious crime than some people have suggested it is. Um, the other the other piece is, again, how many how many cases can we talk about in one in one discussion block? But, Sue, you know, Judge Goron <laughs> has not issued his mm-hmm. his fine for Donald Trump, which, no. you know, Tish James is asking to be three hundred and seventy million dollars. These are apples and oranges. This is a different case. But here's the evidence potentially of the CFO of the Trump organization potentially pleading guilty to inflating assets and then lying about it on the stand. If you're judging Goron and you're kind of just looking at this reporting, do you think that influences the way he thinks about potential fraudulent behavior at the Trump organization? 
I think he's got an eye on it, but I think he's on to it. I mean, he's already passed down a, you know, this case was was already decided on summary judgment. We really entered the courtroom just to decide what the damages are. So I think he's he's probably watching it tonight. But I, I think his number and what it's going to come down to is going to be, I think he once said there was a there was a courtroom full of evidence. And I think that's probably what he's weighing as he prepares that decision, which we're expecting it could happen this week, next week, the week after. He'd said the end of January, we're into February, but I think in the next few weeks we're going to see it. A lot of waiting for a lot of big news. Suzanne Craig, thank you for joining me tonight. As always, our in-house, not in-house, our house expert. Um, Joyce, (laughs) please stick around because I do want to get your reaction to new reporting, more breaking news about one of the other cases that Trump is facing this one down in Florida. It is about a locked closet and a secret room down at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI reportedly did not check when searching for Trump's classified documents. That's coming up. Plus, half the legal team that has beat Donald Trump twice will be here to discuss the single most important thing that resulted in his conviction. That is next. There is ketchup dripping down the wall, and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The president was extremely angry and had thrown his lunch against the wall. That was Cassidy Hutchinson testifying to the January 6th committee about the time when President Trump hurled his lunch at the wall. The wall and the White House. Now, Trump has denied that this ever happened, but... Since then, we have only gotten more evidence that suggests Mr. Trump has a tendency towards tantrums when he does not get his way. Today, Politico published an interview with Roberta Kaplan, one of the lawyers representing E. Jean Carroll in her defamation case against Trump. In that interview, Ms. Kaplan describes how Mr. Trump behaved during a deposition in one of her previous cases against him. She recalls, it was about 1130 in the morning, and I said, sir, I have one more topic I want to cover, but is it okay after I cover that we break for lunch? And then you can kind of see his brain working, and he says, well, you're here at Mar-a-Lago. What do you think you're going to do for lunch? And I said, well, I've spoken to your lawyers about that issue, and they graciously offered to provide us with lunch. At which point, Trump took the pile of exhibits, which was probably a good two feet high, and just threw it across the table. These angry outbursts are now almost commonplace in the courtrooms of Trump's numerous trials, despite the fact that this is very unusual behavior, generally speaking. Trump's actions during Eugene Carroll's defamation trial were so disruptive that the judge threatened to kick him out of court. Here's Judge Kaplan. Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial or at least from the presence. I understand you're probably very eager for me to do that. Mr. Trump, I would love it. Judge Kaplan, I know you would. You just can't control yourself in these circumstances, apparently. By the end of that trial, Trump's tantrums were on full display for even the jury after he stood up and walked out of the room during closing arguments. In Trump's New York State civil fraud trial, Judge Arthur Ngoron has repeatedly admonished Trump for these outbursts and for speaking out of turn and for throwing fits in the courtroom. Again, not the typical behavior of most people in a courtroom and certainly not most defendants. Now, even if a lot of abnormal behavior is now pretty normal stuff at this point, pretty normal Trump stuff at this point, the the angry freakouts 
seem to provide a window into Trump's psyche, into the way Donald Trump thinks about himself. Right now, we're awaiting a ruling from the D.C. appeals court over Trump's claim that he should have absolute immunity for anything he did or said as president. And that claim of immunity is more than just a legal defense. It would seem to be an almost explicit statement about how Trump thinks about his relationship to the rule of law, namely that he's not bound by it. He can do and say and throw whatever he wants, even catch up. And while this has become sort of central to his legal defense, it is also a huge liability in a court of law. As E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, told Politico, our whole thesis was, this is someone who can't and won't follow the rules. So one would think that when you're in the courtroom with the jury acting like a bully and not following the courtroom rules as instructed by the judge, that would be a bad strategy. The single most important thing that convicted Donald Trump, both from his deposition and from the trial, is Donald Trump's own behavior. It's this concept that the rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to him. Someone who has experienced Trump's courtroom tantrums firsthand, Sean Crowley, co-counsel in the E. Jean Carroll case, joins me here in studio, coming up next. That case is a ridiculous case. We're appealing it. Uh, It is. She didn't know anything about me. She didn't know when it happened. There was nothing. People are looking at that case. It's a disgrace. We're appealing that case. We had a very hostile judge. We're appealing that case. It's a ridiculous case. That was Donald Trump this week responding to the jury verdict in the E. Jean Carroll case where he was ordered to pay eighty three point three million dollars for defamation. Joining me now is Sean Crowley, one of the attorneys who represented E. Jean Carroll in her winning case. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, uh, she didn't know anything about me. She didn't know when it happened. There was nothing. Now, he, Donald Trump has not really mentioned E. Jean Carroll's name since the, the jury handed down its verdict. Does that, does that edge onto the line of defamation right there? He's definitely getting closer. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think... He's obviously has someone advising him before he sends these posts and makes these statements, which I think is different from how he has behaved for the last four years and certainly in the lead up and and during trial. Um, So we'll see what happens. But we are still counting this as a win. It's been a week now. And he hasn't defamed her, which I think is probably a record in the history of this case. Well, yeah. And it's such a testament to the sort of self-indulgence uh, with which he has conducted himself, his sense of impunity. I want to talk about what Robbie Kaplan brought up in Politico in her interview. And I'm sure, you know, she mentions you in it as well, obviously, <laughs> since you're co-counsel. Um, the outbursts in the courtroom. Um, she contends that that's the thing that's, that secured the conviction, his inability to contain his rage. Can you talk a little bit about that and how central it was in your sort of psychological strategy, if nothing else? Right. So, I mean, I will tell you, like going into the trial, we didn't really know what was going to happen. We didn't know if he was going to show up. There was a previous trial uh, in May of last year where the issue was whether he actually sexually assaulted Eugene and whether he defamed her in another statement. Uh, and he didn't show up for that trial. Right. And just a side note, I think it's interesting that he doesn't show up when the issue is whether he sexually assaulted someone. But when the issue is whether he has to pay for that he shows up. Right. And tells you about priorities. Exactly. Exactly. So we didn't know going in whether he was going to be there and whether he was or how he would behave if he was there. So our strategy from the beginning was like, we're just going to come in and tell the facts and argue the law. And hopefully the jury believes us and believes Eugene. Um, but then as we saw his behavior, uh, 
we started to get the sense that it was probably going to help our case. Uh, you know, I think I've said before, lawyers and, and witnesses are used to sort of telling the jury about what happened in the past. Yeah. There isn't like a, a real time blog. example. Yeah. And in this case, there really was. I mean, it started with him sort of muttering things and shaking his head and rolling his eyes. And it progressed to him actually storming angrily out of the courtroom a couple of times, including during um, closings. And so our whole point was this guy doesn't follow the rules. And he was sort of acting that out for He us. was literally yeah. offering a case study. And I should just be clear. I said conviction. Of course, he was found liable. Um, Robbie also mentions that the the sort of jury reading the jury in all of this was was comp- they were a hard jury to sort of read. And there's a moment at the end. It's like there are how many men and how many women? There were seven men and two women. And there's one guy who at the after they deliver the verdict makes eye contact with Eugene Carroll and smiles. Is that right? Yeah. Do you I mean, given the fact that they were hard to read, how much do you think just seeing Trump storm out during closing arguments like effectively sealed the deal in terms of your argument? I think it definitely helped. Like, I never like to read juries. I think it's just sort of jinxes and you don't know why someone makes a face that they make. Uh, Some jurors look at you, some don't. I don't want to read too much into that. I think the fact that most of them remained pretty stoic throughout the whole the whole trial, even when there were these crazy antics, really meant that they were taking their role seriously, Seriously. that they were like, we're not going to judge this until the end. Uh, You know, there were a couple points, I think, where we got or there were a couple laughs because things were just so funny or crazy that who could contain themselves. But by and large, they really just they sat there, they paid attention, they took notes and they did not portray how they were feeling, you know, on their faces. An amazing job they did. And they've been encouraged to stay anonymous, given, um, you know, history as a guide. Um, <clears throat> Robbie Kaplan talks about the way in, I mean, we've been talking about on the show, the way in which Trump seeks to intimidate everyone, um, but especially judges um, and especially prosecutors. And, you know, Robbie, who, you know, argued this case with you, says she did, didn't really pay that much attention to you. But you got up there in closing arguments and you were pointing at Donald Trump. And she makes a note of how brave that was. And I think, you know, especially for those of us who've never had to, you know, <laughs> prosecute Trump in a, or go after him in a civil trial. Can you talk a little bit about the psychology of that and your ability to just point a finger at arguably one of the most menacing sort of public figures in American life? Sure. So, I mean, so Robbie's close, Robbie did the closing and then his lawyer, Trump's lawyer, Lena Haba, did her closing. And then I got to get up and sort of rebut the arguments that she had made, which okay. is usually a pretty fun thing because it's not really scripted. You're just kind of responding. Uh, but so and Robbie's approach was, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I'm going to ignore all the noise. I'm going to not pay attention when this guy gets up and walks out of the courtroom. Um, Alina then then went and she really brought up the temperature mm-hmm. um, and was sort of shouting and making these points that, you know, we viewed as not only wrong, but pretty offensive. Like Eugene asked for this. Eugene has benefited from the fact that this guy sexually assaulted her and then defamed her. Uh, and so I was feeling pretty fired up at that time. Um, and, you know, I didn't really think about it as like, I'm going to go up here and, and point at the former president. I thought, This is just a guy who's done a lot of really bad things and who has behaved like a petulant five-year-old for the last two weeks. And I want to make sure that the jury sees that. Um, And so and so that's sort of what I did. And, and, um, you know, he kind of glared at me and I was like, okay, you know, you're not going to really scare us. I think Eugene has said in a couple interviews that she was very, very, very terrified 
when she learned that he was coming. She just didn't know what to expect. And then the moment when she started testifying and when she saw how he was behaving, it just became clear to her that he was, in her words, nothing. Wow. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of what happened. Wow. That's, uh, um, you know, I think... <clears throat> I'm going to defend uh, journalism for chronicling Trump's mendacity and his, you know, threats, because I think it's important since he is a prominent public figure. But to not buy into the fear that he seeks to create, I think, is one way of countering um, the, this, the, the, the poisoned harvest that he seeks to sow, right? It's a lot easier to do that when there are not TV cameras <laughs> and he's not at a rally where people are shouting, supporting him. It's a lot easier when it's a court of law with a judge who is keeping things under control and runs his courtroom like a tight ship. Um, it's a lot easier to do that. Well, let's hope that other prosecutors take note of how you guys handled him and other judges take note of how Lewis Kaplan ha- handled him. Um, congratulations on a very big deal for not just, you know, E. Jean Carroll, but I think for a lot of women and people in American society generally. Uh, Sean, it's great to see you. I hope you get some rest. Sean Crowley. Thank you so much. We have more ahead tonight, including whether the FBI may have left behind classified documents inside a locked closet and a hidden room during its search of Mar-a-Lago. We'll have more on that right after the break. Tonight, ABC News is reporting that special counsel Jack Smith's team has questioned several witnesses in its classified documents case about a closet and a so-called hidden room that the FBI failed to check when it executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. During this search, the FBI seized more than 100 classified documents from Trump's office and storage room. We know from Jack Smith's indictment of Trump that many of those documents had previously been kept in boxes stacked on a ballroom stage, lining the walls of a bathroom and spilled on the floor of a storage room. According to the indictment, Trump eventually had those documents moved. But ABC News reports that in June of 2022, while Trump's lawyer Evan Corcoran was searching that storage room for classified documents, Trump allegedly asked a longtime Mar-a-Lago employee to change the lock on a closet door that the Secret Service had previously managed. And Trump wanted the key. Two months later, when agents reached that closet during their search, they could not locate a key for it. They were told the space behind the door eh, went nowhere, so they decided not to break it open. ABC sources say that in addition to the closet, the FBI also failed to search a hidden room connected to Trump's bedroom. Back with us to discuss this new development is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, thank you for sticking around. Um, I don't know much about FBI raids. They've never raided my house. Thank you. But it just seems like usually they check all the locked doors, doesn't it? You know, the place that I most want to search is behind the locked door and in the hidden secret room. And the search warrant certainly covered them. The search warrant was very broad. It permitted agents to search any areas at Mar-a-Lago, any rooms that Trump and his staff had access to and where these documents, the classified materials, could have been stored. So that would have clearly covered both of these spaces. Do you think it, um, I mean, it reminded me of the Washington, the fabulous Washington Post reporting, I believe it was December of 2022, that FBI field agents were initially reluctant to get involved with the Mar-a-Lago raid, that there was real tension between um, sort of the executive branch of the FBI, if you will, and the, the field agents who would actually have to go into Mar-a-Lago. 
Does this suggest to you that maybe they sort of took Trump at his word at face value in a way that perhaps they should have not? You know, I'm not sure what to make of it. I don't know that anyone from the Washington field office went down to execute this search warrant. That's a good question. More likely, it would have been conducted by agents out of the Miami office. Um, there's no reason to believe that they would not have gone to the full contours of the search. And so, frankly, this one is a bit of a head scratcher, because even if they had believed, for instance, that a locked uh, closet was beyond the ambit of their search warrant, they could have simply hunkered down and gone back to the judge for additional permission before they left the premises. That's not an unusual thing that you do during execution of a search warrant when you encounter a situation that you hadn't fully anticipated and you want to make sure that the search doesn't go beyond what you're authorized to do because then you would lose your ability to lose that evidence so sometimes prosecutors do go back and ask a judge for an additional warrant or an amended warrant, but that didn't happen here. Yeah, I mean, given Trump's reported interest in changing the lock, this is the day Evan Corcoran is basically doing uh, a clutter clearance in the storage room trying to find classified documents. Trump asks someone else to change the lock and give him the key on this secret closet and apparently doesn't flag it to Evan Corcoran. Given Trump's own personal, again, alleged interest in this closet— you know, it, why wouldn't Jack Smith go back to get this? And do you think, I mean, from at this stage of the game, it seems like we're never going to find out what was in that. Is, is that fairly accurate? So it's very interesting. I think the reporting suggests that they didn't learn about the timing of the change on the lock until some months after they had executed the warrant. And perhaps they had other information that suggested that whatever documents maybe were in there at one point, had been moved. Perhaps they um, felt comfortable that they had recovered everything. But, you know, the government's primary objective here is to restore to the government all of this classified material. So one has to believe if they had reason to think that there was classified material still located at Mar-a-Lago, that they weren't able to obtain voluntarily, that they would have gone back with a warrant for more. Can Joyce, can we talk about the sort of the Mar-a-Lago case going to trial and what your level of optimism is in terms of this going to a courtroom before November of 20 of this year? Golly, I haven't used the word optimism in the same <laughs> sentence with the Mar-a-Lago case for a long time. I mean, this is a simple case as far as prosecutors view evidence and how much you have to do to get a case ready for trial. It should have already been at trial. The judge seems intent on slow walking it, but she's up against her own deadline to hold a Section 4 hearing on the classified information. And of course, prosecutors have the ability, if they don't like her rulings there, to take an interlocutory appeal ahead of trial. Um, I've always been of the view that there would be a strong case here for the 11th Circuit, given the law in our circuit, to suggest that she should step aside, not because she has any clear bias, but because given her history with this defendant in these cases and in, in the earlier issue involving the search at Mar-a-Lago, public confidence is better served with another judge on the case. So, you know, there are a lot of ifs in that sentence. But if this case gets to the point where Jack Smith does decide to uh, take an interlocutory appeal on the SIPA issue, then perhaps there would be reason for optimism if this case were to go to another judge. Wow. That's a lot of ifs before we get to the word optimism. Joyce Vance, 
<laughs> you are wise, wise, wise. Thank you for your time tonight, my friend. Thanks, Alex. We have one more story for you tonight. Where things stand as the U.S. prepares for retaliatory attacks in a drone, for a drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members. Former CIA Director John Brennan joins me right after this break. So this is a dangerous moment in the Middle East. We will continue to work to avoid a wider conflict in the region. But we will take all necessary actions to defend the United States, our interests, and our people. And we will respond when we choose, where we choose, and how we choose. You know, I don't think the, uh, the adversaries are of a one-and-done mindset. Uh, and so uh, they have a lot of capability. I have a lot more. Tensions remain high in the Middle East tonight as the U.S. prepares to deliver retaliatory strikes for the recent drone attack in Jordan that killed three American service members and wounded more than 40 others. At this moment, it is still unclear what exactly will happen and where. The U.S. has blamed an umbrella group of Iranian-backed militias, the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, for these attacks and has indicated that any action would be enduring, not simply a one-time strike. Joining me now is former CIA Director John Brennan. Director Brennan, thank you for being here. Um, I wonder what the sort of stipulation enduring, not a one-time strike suggests to you in terms of what the White House is thinking about? Well, I think, Alex, as the Iranian proxy groups uh, in the region have demonstrated, they continue to carry out these attacks against U.S. forces, U.S. interests. And so I think the Biden administration recognizes that they're going to have to keep a sustained uh, effort against these groups to prevent them from continuing to carry out these attacks. So I suspect that we're getting closer to the commencement of these strikes. I suspect that they're going to be directed against these groups that reside in Syria, Iraq, and in Yemen. And also they're going to be targeted uh, against those elements that may have participated in some of these attacks against the U.S. interests, including some of the members of the Al-Quds Force, which is the part of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards that works very closely with these groups. So I do think we're going to see something that's going to be sustained. It's going to be uh, broader than what has happened to, uh, to date. Uh, but I do think this focus is going to be on those groups in those three countries. You mentioned the Quds Force. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Iran and its sort of central organization and these uh, sort of Iranian-backed militias and, and what the implications are in terms of deterrence, right? I mean, they're operating in a kind of—they they share some of the same goals, but there is a different sort of value set, potentially, between these umbrella groups and Iran proper. Can you talk a little bit more about how that relationship works? Well, you're right, Alex. A lot of these groups, they are local groups, whether you're talking about the Houthis in Yemen or Hezbollah in Iraq or others that are in Syria. They do have local agendas, but yet the Iranians support them because a lot of times they're co-religionists. They're uh, Shia extremist groups, militia groups that are uh, in league with the Iranians as far as trying to push U.S. interests out of the area, U.S. military forces out of the area as well. So Iran provides them training, material support, uh, as well as uh, expertise, uh, allows them to build up these capabilities that they use against their local adversaries. Certainly the Houthis have used their capabilities against their Yemeni adversaries, but also now these groups have the wherewithal to be able to carry out attacks against U.S. forces, against international shipping and other places. So Iran does play a very strong role here, and I think the United States, with these sustained strikes that I think are going to be coming soon, they're going to be sending a clear 
signal to Iran to cease and desist, or the United States is going to continue to carry out these efforts to degrade their capabilities. But at this point, I don't think we're going to go against Iraq, Iran proper inside of Iran. You know, you mentioned the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and after the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, there was a lot of back-channel diplomacy to sort of de-escalate what was, could potentially have been an explosive situation. Given the fact that Iran plays such a central role in the organizations of these groups that are responsible for the slaughter of the U.S. service members, do you think that there's a role for back-channel diplomacy here? I was surprised that um, John Kirby, the national security spokesperson, said that there were not any current communications with Iran that he could speak to. Well, I think they probably are not having direct communications with Iran, but there are intermediaries that are used. The Quds Force is the force that Qasem Soleimani used to head up before he was killed. But it is still very active. It is still engaged in cultivating these relationships, building up the capabilities of these proxy forces. And so, therefore, I think they're going to continue to be very active. But the United States does work with various elements in the region. Uh, we'll have some contacts with those who are in direct contact with the Quds Force or the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. But I'm sure that they're going to be sending signals both publicly and privately to the Iranians that there will be more in store if the Iranians continue to go down this path of putting this type of military pressure on U.S. forces in the region, as well as against international shipping and other targets. Do you think, I mean, what we were talking about is very much the stick approach. There's also been floated, there's been some reporting, I think NBC News has as well, that the Biden administration is looking into recognizing a Palestinian state. Is that the carrot in all of this? Do you think that that has a de-escalatory effect on all of this, the idea that the U.S. is trying to meaningfully change the dynamic in Gaza? Well, I think Iran is going to continue to put pressure on the United States. Uh, They are very interested in maintaining their revolutionary credentials. I do think it's critically important if we're going to try to get ahead of any of this violence in the region to pursue a two-state solution, uh, to make sure that the Palestinian people, not Hamas, the Palestinian people realize that there is support for their aspirations for statehood. This is a long and difficult road ahead. But I, I do know that the Biden administration wants to keep that hope alive and pursue it, also keep hope uh, that there's going to be the prospect of establishment of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, But these are all very complex and complicated issues that are going to take continued work on the part of our diplomats. Former CIA Director John Brennan, it is always so great to speak with you, sir. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. That is our show for this evening.